0: Good morning. I'm all in. Are you all in? Before you get to thinking, well, Chris, you're not all in, you're leaving. No, I'm all in. No matter where I'm at, no matter where you're at, we're all all in, right? The church is universal and we are a family. And this family is going to continue to be all in and continue to go in an all in direction. Just know that. And so I'm thankful that you're here this morning as we continue our series entitled All of Me. Let me ask you a question. How many of you are this kind of person? Raise your hand if you are a sectional eater. You now I had a teacher that I used to work with that loved the fact that the cafeteria had trays that were sectioned off because she didn't want any food on her plate to touch. And if it did touch, she was done. She immediately lost her appetite. Folks that are sectional eaters like to keep everything separate on the plate. So you don't have the mashed potatoes touching the corn. You don't have the coleslaw touching the the beans. I mean, everything has got its place. But then you have these people, the normal people, people like me, people who don't mind the food touching. In fact, they encourage it, right? Nowhere do you see the difference between sectional eaters and general eaters displayed more prominently than at Thanksgiving, right? Watch as people go through the line. The sectional eaters will do everything they can to make sure that everything on the plate has its own space, whereas the general eaters like myself just pile it all on. We don't mind the food touching. In fact, we mix the corn with mashed potatoes. We take for breakfast, the sausage and the and the eggs and the hash browns and mix it all together so that we can have a beautiful mess in our mouths, right? Now the extreme sectional eater will actually only eat one food at a time because they don't even want it touching in their mouth. You know, people like this, maybe you're one of these people. I think there's a hotline for you if you need help. <laughs> these are the folks that eat the fries first and then the burger because they don't want anything even touching in their in their mouths. Now Whether you're a general eater or a sectional eater is really of no consequence. I mean, I think sectional eaters live life with less joy, but that's just me. You do you, right? Paul said don't violate your conscience, so I get it. However, being a sectional person in life does matter. There are too many people who take church, they take their faith, and they stick it up here so that it doesn't touch any other part of their lives. I come to worship, I have my faith, but don't mess with my sports. Don't get involved with my career. Don't don't get involved with my, my schoolwork or my leisure time or any of those things. Just stay in your place. And think about the ramifications of that. When you keep your faith or your church life sectioned off, so that it doesn't spill out of the walls that surround it, then guess what happens to it? Well, it just sits there. It doesn't grow. It doesn't mature. The reverse is this. This is what we should all be seeking in our Christian lives. We should be saying, Jesus, I want you to fill every part of my plate. In fact, I want you to spill over off the plate. It's 24-7-365 Christianity. It's being a hokey-pokey Christian. You know what that is? You put your whole self in, that's what it's all about? Because that is what it's all about. It's about being all in. I'm all in on discipleship to the point that I want you, Jesus, to fill every part of my life, to, to be a part of my work, part of my school, part of my sport, everything. I want you saturating everything I am and everything that I do because that's what it means to be all in. Here's how Jesus defined it. One of the scribes came and heard them arguing, and recognizing that he had answered them well, asked him, What commandment is the foremost of all? And Jesus answered, The foremost is, Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God is one, Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this: you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And for thousands of years, The Jewish people have prayed this prayer every morning and evening as a way of expressing their devotion to God. And we call it the Shema, or they call it the Shema. And and these words are just as important for us today as they are for the people who were living back then. You've heard me say it over and over again, that Jesus is the fulfillment of all things Jewish. Everything that the law and the prophets spoke of was pointing to Him. And there is just as much significance in that for us today as it was for the people living in the first century. What does it mean to be a disciple? Well, it means to love God with every fiber of your being, and then to love others. That's the basis of Christianity. That's Christianity in a nutshell. You get that down, you've pretty much gotten the basics. Love God, love your neighbor. But notice that Jesus doesn't say that we are to love God. He says that we are to love God with what? Heart, soul, mind, and strength. Heart, we understand. We talked about it last week. We get that. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart. Okay, easy enough. Now, heart's got to be involved. Obviously, any kind of relationship that means anything, the heart is involved. And the brain, we understand the mind being involved in this as well. You know, we should be thinking about God. Our thinking should be changed if we're going to follow Jesus. And even strength, we understand. Our vitality, our energy needs to be put forth in a discipleship effort to follow Jesus. The soul? That seems a little vague, doesn't it? How am I to follow Jesus with all my soul? How am I to love him with every bit of my soul? How do I even do that? Well, you can't do it until you first understand what we're talking about when we talk about soul. More specifically, we start with this word and this concept. Nefesh. Now, nefesh is the Hebrew word for soul, and it occurs over 700 times in the Old Testament. Actually, soul is an unfortunate translation because soul, in our language, comes with a lot of baggage. And as a result, nefesh has suffered from quite a bit of an identity crisis because of the way we project our thoughts on this word, which in the Hebrew has a very rich and deep meaning. Most of the baggage comes from the concept of soul that has been derived from Greek philosophies and most notably from Plato. You ever thought about the concept or maybe you've heard of the concept, the ghost in the machine. You ever heard of that? You know, that came about from a guy, a British philosopher by the name of Gilbert Ryle. He used this phrase as a description of Rene Descartes' mind-body dualism. Descartes and others believed that the mental and physical activity of a person occur simultaneously and yet separately. The flavor that many Christians adhere to is this idea that the non-physical, immortal essence of a human that is contained or trapped within our body is to be released at death. It's a ghost in the machine sort of thing. The body is a shell that houses the soul, and at death, the soul is released to go to heaven as the body lays in the ground. And this affects our teaching, it affects our preaching and our belief. I mean, how many times have you heard someone in a Bible class or from the pulpit say, you know, that's, that's just a shell. Your body's just a shell. The body holds no significance for you. What really matters is what's inside, right? That's the essence. We've often believed and taught this, but understand that this notion... This idea, this belief is completely foreign to Scripture. The Bible doesn't teach that. Here's the deal you don't have a soul, you are a soul. And we see this in Scripture over and over again. The human soul is comprised of both body and spirit. The Jews didn't buy into this false dichotomy that we often believe and teach. Soul and body were not two separate parts or distinct parts of a human. That's a Greek philosophy. You know, in fact, it's more closely akin to Gnosticism, which you may remember John fought Gnosticism as well as many of the first century Christians. They had to combat this heresy known as Gnosticism, which basically believed that there was a huge difference between the spiritual and material. Spiritual things were regarded as inherently pure, while material things were intrinsically evil. Gnostics also believed that the spiritual part of the person was their true identity and the only thing that really mattered while the body, the flesh, was wicked. So the flesh served no good purpose. It was the soul that truly mattered. And many in the religious world have long held the belief that the physical is bad and decaying while the spiritual is the good that we should cling to. However, Paul, who spoke about this topic often, doesn't make that distinction. We can go back in Genesis, Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. This is from the King James Version. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Now, King James translates nephesh as soul here. If you're using the New American Standard Version, you see that nephesh is rendered person. The NIV refers to nephesh as being. And the ESV uses creature. But I want you to notice the language here indicates that soul was not something that Adam had. It's what he was. In Deuteronomy 24 and verse 7, it's interesting, a kidnapper is referred to there as a nefesh thief. In Numbers 31 and verse 19, a murderer is called a nefesh slayer in the original language. In Genesis 46, 15, we learn that Jacob's family consisted of 33 nefesh, or family members. Biblical people even referred to themselves as nefesh. In fact, nefesh is often translated as I or me. If you look at Psalm 119 and verse 175, the psalmist states, let my soul, which is nefesh, let my soul live that it, my nefesh, may praise you and let your ordinances help me. The author is using the word Nephesh to emphasize that his entire being is involved in praising God. You go to chapter 3, verse 1 of Song of Solomon. It reads, on my bed night after night I sought him whom my soul, nefesh, loves. I sought him but did not find him. Love is an emotion that activates the body. The writer here is not talking about some inward part of them that's disembodied, that, that loves. No, it's their whole body that they're talking about. Incidentally, nephesh is not a term that is relegated just to humans. Nephesh is also used to describe a variety of animals in Scripture. We see this in Genesis 1.21, as well as Genesis one verse twenty-four and Genesis one verse thirty. Anything that has the breath of life, Genesis 1 and verse 30 is referred to as nefesh. Now, what's interesting is that if the breath of life has left a human or an animal, its nefesh remains. It's just a dead nefesh, a nefesh corpse, if you will. Notice I didn't say that all creatures have a soul. All creatures are a soul, which brings up a question, doesn't it? Do you need to go get your dog baptized? Because it's a soul, it may miss out on heaven. What's the difference between us and animals? Some people say it's because we have a soul and they don't. That's not the difference, because the Bible refers to animals and humans as souls, right? You don't have a soul, you are a soul. So what's the difference? Well, obviously we can reason. We have free will. What's the major difference between us and animals? Yeah. Yeah. When Adam was sitting there and all the animals were paraded before him and he named them, in not one of them did he find a helper suitable. And so God, in the first surgery ever performed, took a rib from his side and fashioned the woman to compliment him, to be a helper suitable. The difference between us and animals is that we were made in the image of God. You and a, and a giraffe are similar in that you're a nephesh, but you're different from a giraffe in more ways than one. But the biggest way is because you were stamped in the image of God. You have his fingerprints all over you. That's what makes you special. Remember Looney Tunes? When I was a, a kid, I was glued to the TV set on Saturday mornings to watch the antics of Yosemite Sam and Sylvester the Cat and Daffy Duck and all the Looney Tunes. Do you remember how Looney Tunes portrayed death? Remember what it would happen? So Wiley e. Coyote would have an anvil fall on him, or Sylvester the Cat would uh, use up one of his nine lives. And what always happened is the body would be laying there, and a transparent form of them would rise up from their body, strumming a harp, right? Now, it didn't last because the next scene or the next episode, you'd see him again. But I'm afraid that too many in our world can relate more to that than what the Bible actually teaches concerning the soul, the body, the spirit, right? We were not made to just be some disembodied spirit that after we die, we just float around on the clouds playing a harp. What's interesting to note is the biblical emphasis is not on where we go when we die. Have you noticed that? The biblical emphasis is on what? resurrection. That's the biblical emphasis. Now, that doesn't mean that the Bible has nothing to say about where you go when you die. Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 7. You might remember this verse where it says, the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the spirit will return to God who gave it. Remember what Paul wrote in Philippians 1, 21 and following? He said, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I do not know which to choose, but I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. So Paul believed that upon death he would go to be with Jesus. And where is Jesus? Well, he's in the heavenly realms, the unseen places, sitting next to the throne throne of God. So I think, you know, it wouldn't be within... it wouldn't be unreasonable for us to think that when we die, we'll immediately go to be with Jesus. What does the heavenly realm look like? What is it going to be like to be with Jesus right after we die? I don't know. You don't know either. Nobody really knows because the Bible just doesn't give us clarity on that. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul speaks about how our hope is not in being some disembodied spirit that floats around in the air. Paul says that when we die, we are a naked spirit. And being a naked spirit isn't bad, but it's not the goal. That's not our hope. You know what our hope is? Our hope is found in resurrection. The point when that naked spirit will be clothed with our imperishable and immortal body. Our hope is in our spirit and our body being reunited and redeemed. That's our hope. In other words, folks, we're not Tupperware. You're not some plastic container that you pop the lid to get to the meat. Your body is important. You're going to have a body in eternity. What is it going to look like? I don't know. Paul said, you know, don't need to worry about that. We don't know. But your body's important. Anything God made is important, right? It's not disposable. It has a purpose. Soul means whole. Nefesh equals all of me. Body and soul. And then you say, well, what about spirit? That's a good question. Let's make the confusion even tougher. Spirit, in both the Hebrew and the Greek simply means wind or breath your spirit is what animates you it's what gives you life when you die your spirit is gone which means there is no wind there is no breath to animate you any longer you're kind of like that flag that's just lying limp on the flagpole because there's no wind to put it in motion We are no longer what we were because our bodies have lost that aspect that made us alive. As I said a moment ago, a dead body can actually be referred to as a dead nephesh, but it can't be called a spirit because, well, a spirit dwells within a body, but it's not a body. A soul, however, is the whole person. It refers to one's entire existence. Confused yet? You ever watch a, a news report where they say there's been a plane crash and All 200 souls on board were killed. What do they mean? They mean that all 200 disembodied spirits on board are gone? Obviously not. They're talking about people. And that's what we're talking about. Again, you don't have a soul. You are a soul. And your spirit is what animates you. It's what gives you life. But your soul is your entire being. It's who you are. And so all that being said, what are the implications of this? How do we apply it to the Shema that, that Jesus gave. Well, I said in the beginning, soul is an unfortunate translation because nefesh involves such a deeper, richer meaning than we often assign to it. And our misconceptions about soul diminish the true nature of nefesh. The most basic meaning of the Hebrew word nephesh, if you boil it all down, the most basic meaning is throat. Numbers chapter 11, verse 6, it reads, but now our whole being is dried up. There is nothing at all except this manna before our eyes. Whole being here is the word nefesh, and it literally translates here throat. But since your whole life, your whole being depends on what goes in and out of your throat, nefesh can be used here to refer to your whole life, the whole person. Psalm 42, as the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they continually say to me, where is your God? Your throat can be thirsty like a deer, but that thirst can be a metaphor for how your whole physical being longs to know and be known by God. So you go back to the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Is it starting to kind of come into focus a little bit? If we're talking about your whole being as a soul, then obviously we're talking about something that Jesus has already related to us in the Shema. When the New York Giants won the Super Bowl several years ago, they all got their rings. All the players got their rings. You know, you get a Super Bowl ring for winning the Super Bowl. And as you would expect, they're gaudy, they're audacious, they're bold. Here's a picture of of the ring itself. You can see the the ring has four trophies representing the four championships that the Giants won. You know, the blue sapphires kind of set it off. But the neat thing about this ring is the inscription on the inside. Can you see what that says? It says all in. That was the motto for the Giants that year. And it was so important to their success that they decided to engrave it on the inside so that all the team members could remember that their success stemmed from the fact that they were all in. That every one of them were all in. And I've talked to our elders about getting us rings, but they have declined the offer so far. (laughs) I guess if you give $5,000, you can get one. The greatest commandment as given by our Lord is an all-in exhortation. It's body, it's soul, it's every fiber of your being. You know, all-in is a term you commonly hear in poker. In the game of high stakes poker, when you go all in, you empty your pockets, you shove all your chips to the table, middle of the table. I mean, you're, you're going all in, you're banking on the fact that you've got the winning hand, right? And when it comes to discipleship, that's what it's all about. It's about cashing out, it's about laying it all on the line, it's about emptying oneself. But here's the biggest difference between poker and discipleship, in case you didn't know. In discipleship, you're not just going all in for you. You're not just going all in for Jesus. You're going all in for others as well. And I say that because we often hear, well, the mission of the church is to save souls, right? And that's true. Nothing wrong with that. As long as we're talking about whole people, right? As long as we're talking about whole people. Saving souls is not about about trying to reach some mysterious inner matter within a person this non-physical, immortal essence that's trapped inside a person. No, a concern for souls should translate to serving both the physical and spiritual needs of our neighbor. That's James two fourteen through 17, right? The gospel isn't just about saving that intangible aspect of someone's existence. When God saves a soul, He saves the whole soul. Paul wrote, But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. That's Romans 8 and 11. Again, these bodies were not made just to be disposable. Paul goes on to talk about the redemption of the body in Romans 8 and verse 23. So if the soul is talking about the whole, then a concern for souls necessitates a concern for temporal needs as well, right? bodies need to be clothed they need to be fed they need shelter bodies also need to be saved by the redemptive work of jesus christ so yes we need to be concerned for souls all the needs for the soul which is why we preach the gospel and why we feed the hungry why jesus said in relation to judgment day in matthew chapter 25 the difference between the sheeps and the the sheep and the goats or what you know the sheep are the ones that tended to the physical needs of those there were needy. And the same is true for us. Yes, the mission of the church is to save souls as long as we're talking about the whole person. So we preach the gospel and we feed the hungry. We give the thirsty something to drink. We use meeting their physical needs as a springboard to meeting their most important need. How many of you have ever watched a, a football game on your high definition television? And you see the play develop and your quarterback is dropping back and the wide receiver is streaking down the field. No one on him. And you're screaming at the television, there he is, throw the ball. And he gets sacked. And you get angry. You want to throw the remote. How could he not see that guy who was wide open? Well, you know why he couldn't see him. He had this big, fat, 300-pound lineman trying to take his head off. You had a very different perspective than he did you could see the whole thing playing out. Perspective means everything, doesn't it? How you see things makes all the difference. When my kids were little, people would tell me, oh, you better enjoy it while you can. They grow up so fast, and I sometimes would think not fast enough, but, but it's true. They do grow up very fast, and now that I'm on the other side of it, I can see that they were right, but they had a perspective that I didn't have at the time perspective means everything and so I want to ask you to do something for for me this morning maybe a little bit of homework I want you to play it forward play your life forward how is your life going to end up if you stay on the same path and the same trajectory that you're on right now how does this whole thing turn out is the life that you're currently living going to bring about the best spiritual result Because if you're not all in, it's time to start thinking about what you need to do. Picture yourself sitting in the nursing home. Picture yourself sitting on the porch swing. Or picture yourself lying in the hospice bed. And how will you reflect on your life? What will your life be? You know, we're all born with an expiration date. And you don't know when it's going to come due. I can tell you this, you're not getting out of here alive. You're not getting out of this life alive. At least not physically. So what are you going to do about that? Play your life forward. How does this whole thing end up? And I want to encourage you to empty your pockets now. Sell out now. Push all your chips to the middle of the table. Go all in and don't look back with regret. Your life is too short to live like this. You're but a vapor. You appear for a little while, and then you're gone. You vanish. Life is too short to live sectionally. This is how we must live. A big old helping pile of faith sitting on the plate, spilling over, so that it, it infiltrates every part of our life. It saturates our life. That's how we should be living. And if you're not living that way right now, do something about it. And if you need our help, why don't you come as we stand and as we sing?